Welcome to the Money Talks Money Matters podcast. We're here to take away the stigma of money and provide a transparent platform of knowledge for anyone that tunes in. The goal is to give 20-year-olds the perspective of 80-year-olds in regards to business, finance, and decision-making. My name is Darian Williams. And I'm Sean McHenry. Guys, we've made it. Episode 12, the final episode of season one. Yes, this is it. John White, a former DEA agent who has achieved financial freedom. After taking the advice of financial mentors, he has built the future he dreamed of for not only him, but his family as well. Today, we dive into the importance of discipline and balance, along with simple strategies anyone can use to retire with at least seven figures. We're going to launch into it. This is episode 12 of Money Talks, Money Matters. For launch in three, two, one. John White, it's great to have you. Um, would you like to just introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, Sean, Darian, thanks for having me. Uh, John White, I live here in Parkland, Florida, part-time now. Um, I'm uh, 51 years old. I currently am a uh, comp- compliance investigations manager with Publix. Um, it's a new position for me. I recently took that job about five months ago. Prior to that, I was with the Drug Enforcement Administration as an assistant special agent in charge. Uh, spent about 26 years with the DEA. Uh, lived all throughout the country, traveled the globe uh, with that. And that was um, quite an adventure, something I always wanted to do when I was younger. Uh, before my time with DEA, I uh, was a sheriff's deputy with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office um, in all about 30 years, uh, yeah, about 30 years of government service at the local and federal level. And uh, um, I'm excited to be in the private sector right now, but really, uh, you know, proud of uh, my time in the government and uh, serving the community. Uh, I have a wife. Uh, we've been a couple for 30 years. We've been married for 25 years. I have two daughters, Darian. You guys both know Isabel and Darian knows both Isabel and Katrina. Okay. Uh, very proud of them. Katrina's at the University of Florida as a sophomore. And then uh, Isabel's with you at Stoneman Douglas uh, in her senior year. So, uh, of course, got a little pug named Mac <laughs> and he's the center of the family at this point. Yeah. Uh, but uh yeah, no, that, that's a little bit about me. Got you. So my first question, just going to jump into it, is like, how did you get started into the DEA? DEA? Who, in, who introduced you? And just kind of walk us through that. So when I was in college at the University of South Florida, um, I had a, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I saw my dad doing the the nine to five grind in uh, in the business world. And, and I've at that time wanted to do something a little bit different. I wanted to do something that was a little bit more adventurous. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to serve in some capacity. Uh, one of my college professors, I got a degree in criminal justice and uh, political science. And one of my um, college professors said, you should really think about the DEA. Uh, you're just cut like a DEA agent. I didn't really know what that meant, yeah. but I started to look into their mission. Uh, back in at that time when I was in college, there was a crack epidemic going on. It was ravaging the inner cities. It was just destroying people's lives. Um, uh, the uh, White House at the time, right when I graduated, uh, Bill Clinton had won in, in the election and he had uh, um, kind of signed off on a number of grants that um, uh, where they were hiring a lot of law enforcement and so forth. So that kind of cleared the path for me to get into law enforcement. There was a lot of funding and a lot of hiring uh, so the path back there. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, but before I got into the DEA, yeah. I had to get experience in law enforcement, which is like just about any industry. Before you get to where you want to be, sometimes you have to uh, build that foundation. And I knew they weren't going to just hire some kid right out of college. It happens sometimes, but it doesn't happen that often. So I had to make myself competitive. So um, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office ended up hiring me as a sheriff's deputy. Um, but before that, I wanted to get exposure to the DEA and um, I called them up and asked them if they would take an intern from the University of South Florida. And I remember I talked to one of the supervisors down there and they said, you know, we used to have an internship program. It's actually a paid internship program and it's called a co-op. But for some reason, uh, D.C. stopped that program. I don't know why they stopped it, but uh, I, I wouldn't be opposed to it. And I said, well, if uh, is there somebody I can call to see if we can get the program going again? And he get, he gave me a number to somebody in D.C. And um and so I went back to my university and I talked to the uh, dean over the College of Criminal Justice at the time and said, I think we should do this. Um, you know, we should start up this relationship again with the Drug Enforcement Administration. They were really excited about it. Um, and because of that, I was able to reforge that relationship between the DEA and um, the University of South Florida. This was back in. Uh, the early 90s. Um, I wasn't the most competitive applicant for the DEA at that time. My college years were a little bit of a blur. I'll just leave it at that. I like to have fun. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but I also wanted to to get experience. Of course. And um, uh, so it was funny. Uh, the guy who interviewed me for the DEA, once I, I kind of laid the tracks, uh, his name was Mike Powers. He was a legendary DEA agent. And I remember he he had this New York accent and he goes, listen, uh, you're not the most competitive applicant. You know, we've got other applicants that have better GPAs and stuff. He goes, but I feel compelled to take you because you're the guy who made this happen. And uh, so it was it was kind of yeah. uh, fun, a backhanded compliment, yeah. you know, that I well, that that's he what gave you get for opening the door again and asking questions. Absolutely. So I uh, opened the door and and uh, because of that, I was able and that really. Uh, paved the way for my, you know, law enforcement career because I got in the door with the DEA. Um, I was able to make contacts in the law enforcement community, both at the federal level, state level, local level. So when I went um, uh, to apply at the sheriff's office, because I was doing two things at once, I was getting experience at the DEA as a intern and co-op, but then I was um, also uh, applying at the sheriff's office, I had a lot of contacts so that were able to help get me over that threshold, get me over the finish line, um, which was really helpful. So I ended up becoming a sheriff's deputy for about three years before I transitioned over into federal service. What were your roles for sheriff's deputy? I, I was mainly a patrol deputy on midnight shift. Um, the shifts back then were 12 hour shifts. Uh, I worked seven at night to seven in the morning. Oh my gosh. Um, I drank a lot of Mountain Dew. So okay. I didn't drink coffee back then, but I, I drank a lot of Mountain Dew. Oh <laughs> and uh, it got me through the shifts and so forth. It was an inter You learn a lot about yourself because um, I have to be honest, like when you become a cop uh, and you're in a car by yourself going to a, a call, um, you don't know how you're going to react. And, you know, so 
there, there's always that question, like, what am I going to do when it's really serious, when, when I'm in yeah. a really serious situation? And, um, you know, you learn a lot about yourself. Did you ever get to that point? Absolutely. You know, and um, what I learned is that I get scared like everybody else, but I can function when I'm scared. Mm, um, and big. yeah, so that's um, um, anybody who tells you they don't get scared in those situations, they're they're probably sick or they're they're lying to you yeah. because it is a. Uh, I've been in a number of hair raising, you know, situations that, you know, caused me to lose sleep at night, let's just say. And, uh, but, um, but, you know, I, I learned that I, I was able to do it. You know, I, I was able to, um, answer the bell when, when necessary, I was able to, um, you know, walk towards the problem when everyone else was running away from it, even though yeah. I was nervous as heck, you know, do you so, think that seal trade has carried over and the rest of your, um, endeavors. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not, you know, it's not a career for everyone. I don't want, I'm, and I, again, I don't want to paint the picture that I'm John Wayne. You know, you watch a, you know, a Clint Eastwood or a John Wayne movie. They don't look nervous at all. Well, that wasn't me. I got nervous, <laughs> yeah. but I did function, yeah. you know, and, and I got it done. Got you. So what are some habits that you really took from like the DEA that you can apply to now and forever? Will to prepare. You got to prepare. Um, you you always have to have a plan, um, and and that's it's all about preparation and planning. When you're doing long term criminal investigations, um, you you have to um, know the situation. You have to know what you're getting into. You have to mm-hmm. uh, do your homework. You have to have good intelligence. Um, uh, you know, so that that will to prepare, the will to plan, will to train. Um, you, you know. You you definitely want to have that desire to to win, but the will to prepare is everything. You know the preparation, and um, it, it's really helped me in everything in you know throughout my uh, professional career and even in my personal life. I'm a planner. You know, yeah, I, we do in the, in the federal government. We did ops plans for everything. Uh, we tried to plan for every contingency. Uh, I do the same thing in life. You know, uh, I think we were texting and so forth, and we were talking about. Oh yeah, what we're going to yeah. talk about today? Yeah, over. yeah. It's you know, some people talk about life, and they they some people think life is a sprint, some think it's a marathon, but I think it's like climbing Mount Everest. Mm. And and I learned that in my law enforcement career, and and in my family life as well, and in my financial life, uh, because it's it's just it's a grind, but it's worth it. You know, when you get to the pinnacle, when you get to the top, you know, you have to have a plan, you have to be prepared. Uh, you have to train ahead of time. And, um, uh, sometimes circumstances might change. The climate might change. So you may have to hunker down for a little bit, but eventually you're going to have to get back to it and continue on towards the goal. Uh, and you want to keep climbing, you know, climbing that hill, that hill of life, that hill of um, financial independence, uh, you know, financial security. You just want to keep moving forward on that. Um, you know, what does that mean practically? You know, it means, you know, staying out of debt, uh, uh, bad debt. There's good debt and there's bad debt, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, stay out of that bad debt, credit cards, um, yeah. stuff like that. Uh, live within your means. Um, you know, whatever company hires you, if if they have a four hundred one k where there's some matching, you got to do it right from the get go. I was about to say. So, since working for the government, I know that there's tremendous amounts of benefits and so many add-ons that are you know towards the job. I mean, if you could just talk about that for a second and just say what you got financially from the government. So, the, the law enforcement retirement in the federal government it's the best 
retirement. Um, there's different types of retirements in the federal government. Uh, and that's one of the things that attracted me to a career in law enforcement in the federal government. Um, I was able to retire at age 50 with a pension. So um, basically right now I'm double dipping. I'm, I'm earning my salary at Publix and then I'm earning my federal pension. So I'm basically making two salaries right oh now. God. Gotcha. So um, th- it's worth it. That that climbing that hill, you know, climbing Mount Everest, that was my 26 year federal career. It was worth it uh, mm. because now I have that all along the way. The federal government, um, it's no secret. They they call it a thrift savings plan, a TSP. It's the same thing as a in the private sector, a 401k. So I'll. I'll just call it a 401k for the purpose of this uh, podcast. So in my 401k, they um, they match the first 5%, the first 3% dollar for dollar, and um, the next 2%, 50 cents on the dollar. So basically, you're getting free money. So you're crazy not to contribute 5% of your salary because yeah. they're going to give you free money um, that is yours when you retire. And then you have the compounding interest that you're going to... Um, accrue depending on how you invest it. And uh, I've my whole career invested in the S&P 500. You know, you can, Mm. they have different funds within our 401k. You can do a hybrid or a balanced fund that is a mix of stocks and bonds, or you can invest essentially in an index like an S&P 500 or the Dow Jones index. And uh, I've always liked how the S&P has performed. I like the fact that it's 505 of the top performing companies and, you know, in the stock market, um, the top 10 companies that represent the bulk of the index fund are, yeah. are great companies. Um, you know, Apple, Tesla, Google, you know, they're, they're just solid companies. Um, so, uh, throughout my career, I, I contributed depending on the lifestyle I was living, I was contributing anywhere from 7%, but I always did the minimum 5%, but it was usually either 7 to 15% of my income. Uh, there was a few eras of my life where I didn't do 15 plus percent because I was probably living in a zip code I shouldn't have been living in and, you know, a little, a little more expensive than yeah. what I needed to be living in. Uh, but I always, even through some of the bad financial decisions I made in my 20s, I always contributed the bare minimum. For any young people that are listening to this podcast, I mean, you can do an investment calculator and do the math yourself, but the compounding interest is huge. If you, it, it and Listen, don't think 25 years is a long time. It might seem like a long time for you guys right now, but it's yep. going to happen in a blink of an eye. It was just yesterday I was in, at the prom. I, I promise. It, just, <laughs> it was just yesterday. And here I am talking to you guys, and I'm 51 years old. So you had a really fun life, uh, especially when you're really young. Where did you get the discipline? Because I know it's hard to scale back and start saving a lot more when you know if you're making a certain amount of money, you can go and have fun, go out for a drink every now and then. Um, where did you get the discipline to start putting more into your investments? Uh, well, I crashed and burned a couple of times uh, and, uh, and I wasn't so disciplined in my 20s. You know, I had the the bare minimum of, I knew I needed to at least put in the first 5%, but what did I do with the rest of my paycheck? Well, and, and what decisions did I make? Um, back in the 90s, um, in the early 2000s, they were, you know, they were giving away uh, 
people were giving away credit cards. You, you, you know, you, they mm-hmm. were mailing them to you. All she had to do was call in the one eight hundred number and oh, activate yeah. it. It was very predatory. Yeah. Uh, they refer, refer to it now as predatory lending. But I was an undisciplined twenty something year old and um, living impulsively. And uh, on multiple occasions in my twenties, uh, we and I say we, my wife and I, uh, we racked up. Uh, $20,000 plus worth of debt in credit cards. And it was exhausting trying to get out from underneath that because um, you're paying, it's embarrassing to even say this out loud, but we were paying like 18% interest. So you make the minimum payments because we weren't making a lot of money back then. So after making our car payments and our insurance payment, our rent and everything, yeah. We didn't have enough money to put anything more down than the minimum. So you'd make the minimum payment on your credit card. The next month, your credit card balance is higher. So, I mean, you it's just, and you do the, and it's daunting. You're like, we're never yeah. going to get out from underneath this. So that's when you crash and burn. That's what you think. Well, and then, so eventually we had to make drastic lifestyle changes. I would imagine. And, you know, we had to p- aggressively whack away at this credit card debt, um, and eventually pay it off. And we had to do that twice. Uh, so we're a little stubborn, <laughs> but we, <laughs> we, we got to the point when, uh, and it, we just knew we needed to be better and we needed to be more disciplined. We, and, and we, we went through a period where we had no credit cards. We were on a cash basis. We didn't trust ourselves. Oh, it's like the Dave Ramsey approach. We did just not, cash. we did not trust ourselves. Okay. We did not have the discipline. Now we do have credit cards because if you have the discipline, discipline I don't think credit cards are a bad thing. No. If you can pay them off every month, we have a Costco credit card and a Marriott credit card. So uh, we put a lot of money on those, but we pay them off in full every month because we have the means to do so at this point in our life. And we know how to, okay, this is it. We can't put any more on our credit card right now, you know, because we don't ever want to be in a position where we're not paying it off every month. But these companies are giving you free point programs. Of course, yeah. So we get literally thousands of dollars cash back for our Costco credit card every year. Oh my gosh. We're putting a lot of money on it. but Of course, but. But because we have the discipline to pay it off every month, it's worth it for us because that's free money that they're giving us. Uh, Same thing with Marriott. When we travel, we like to stay at Marriott's. They, it's a, a chain that we trust. And we rarely have to pay for a room because uh, we have so, so many, many points. Yeah. So uh, now where it wouldn't become worth it is if we weren't paying off our bill every month. So you have to know yourself and you have to be honest with yourself. Do we have the discipline to do this, to yeah. have these credit cards? I think you said a really big key, though, that a lot of people should know is if you don't have the discipline, don't use it at all. Because yeah, absolutely. Like, because no, that's big. it's a big thing where I guess our egos get in the way and we're like, but I can do it this time. And this time's the one that I'll actually figure it out. But if you know yourself and you see yourself going to certain patterns, just stay away from it. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, then even at some point, like when I was going, we'd be going out with friends. Sometimes you, we'd, we'd purposely leave the credit card at home mm. and we'd only take cash with us. Smart. Uh, because you get carried away when you're out with your friends. <laughs> so, drinks, yeah. you're, you're good. Yeah. So would you encourage your daughters to have a credit card or even start a bank account? Or what do you kind of take? What do you like? What are you coaching them right now to be, you know, financially stable in, in the future? So uh, they do have credit cards and we're trying to um, help them uh, learn how to, we, we want them to build up a, their, a good credit score. Um, a good credit score is important as you go on in life. Um, 
we uh, we monitor it closely. You know, it's kind of that trust but verify basis. You know, the old Ronald Reagan saying. Um, we trust them to be reasonable with their credit cards. Mm-hmm. They tell us when they what they're spending their money on because they know we're going to see it anyways. Um, and we're verifying and we're monitoring it um, on a daily basis. We go over the bill with them because sometimes uh, vendors, you, there can be double charges or false charges that we need to refute and so forth. And yeah, that does happen from time to time. You have to watch the statements and so forth. Um, and and you, we do put them on a limit. You know, it. it uh, it's a way for us to track their spending. And then it's a, these are teachable moments for a, uh, from a parent to a teen to be able to say, listen, let's sit down and talk about this. This is what you spent all your money on this last month. You know, the, uh, this has got to change, you know, so we yeah. can have that conversation with them. And, uh, you know, that, that's our approach. Um, if the spending ever got too um, egregious, you know, they will be on a cash basis. Okay. We'll take those credit cards away. So and they know that. And th- there have been times where we have taken the credit cards away and then they got to come see us for money. And we're going to ask them exactly like, what are you, what are you spending your money on? You know, why, how much is that? So they don't really like doing that. They, they like the freedom of having the card in their pocket. So they, but they know they have to be good stewards of how they use it in order to have it. So. Gotcha. And especially since like, again, I, I think you said that you live in Parkland now, right? Yes. And so do your daughter. So again, like when people, people in Parkland are more entitled to other people in other locations, just because they're quote spoiled in yeah. that way. And is it, is, is it harder or easier to teach your daughter like, like, a, like a good work ethic in a way and just, like teaching that, hey, you shouldn't rely on me, rather trust in yourself to make something work. So they both have really good work ethics. And and I, I guess that's just innate in the way they were born, because I don't know how much of that I taught, but they're workhorses, both of them. And they, they work really hard at school. They uh, both have had jobs where they've worked very, very hard. Um, and I've been very impressed with that. Do they understand the value of the dollar like I did and like their mother did when we were younger? Um, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't live in a zip code like Parkland. I'm, and I'm not, you know, I didn't live in poverty by any means, but it was nothing like Parkland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, money was a lot tighter when I was growing up. Yeah. So I don't hold it against them that they uh, might not understand the value of a dollar the same as I did when I was growing up. Um because they haven't had to struggle like I did when I was growing up. And I don't fault them for that, but it is difficult to teach them, you know, the, the value of the dollar, but they're good. I mean, in that, in that they understand that they've been given a lot in life and they, they, they had a lucky draw, you know, where they, they were born into a family that, you know, we've been able to, uh, to provide pretty well, but as a parent, you don't want your child to be spoiled. Yeah, and you don't want your child to be an elitist. You want them to understand and appreciate what they have, and and I think they do. But it's difficult to if I I don't know if I can look you in the eye and say they understand the value of the dollar the same as I do. I think they'll get it someday because I I hope I don't sound calloused, but I I t- I've told them multiple times 
I will provide for you up until a point. Like, you know, yeah. Once you're in your mid twenties with a college degree and a job, like, that's to go. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the gravy train's done at that point. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, mom and I are going to go spend our money, and yeah, yeah, uh, we're going to go have fun. I want to give them, you know, every opportunity I can. Yeah. In life, but they know at some point it's getting. You know, I'll set them up for success, and then it's up to them to grab success. Now, I wanted to dive in a little bit because I've told you this before, but like a lot of our guests before, they're either self-made entrepreneurs, they've been to college, they still have a business, things like mm-hmm. that. Um, I'd like you to walk us through what it looks like to almost the, tra- the traditional route, as some people would call it, where you go through college, you get a good job, and then you, but you still save and invest and in how you can still build wealth, even taking a very safe approach, some would say. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do believe I've taken a, a somewhat, from a financial perspective, I've taken a safe approach. Uh, approach. I view the federal government and even a large local government like Hillsborough County, which is the county up around Tampa, Florida, uh, a, a large county like Broward County, where we are today, or the a state government or federal government. I view that to be like a Fortune 500 company. These are massive organizations and so forth. Um, for me, and and it, this is just for me. I'm not saying it's the the only approach. I like working for a big established company that has room to grow. Some people, they don't like that. They, um, they want to be uh, more of an independent. They want to be, uh, you know, start their own small business. Nothing wrong with that. But I've seen uh, more people. Uh, for me, it just seemed like a, a smarter bet. You know, I certainly think yeah. I could have made it, you know, going the the small way, a small business, trying to develop it up. Maybe it takes off. But um, the numbers show. Yeah. You know, I, I had a friend, uh, who, a good friend that got into the hotel motel business, got a degree in hotel management and um, same age as me. And he always would go to these kind of these fancy boutique hotels and so forth. And uh would hop around to one small boutique hotel after another. And um, I don't know how much of a, like what kind of 401ks he had, how much of a, you know, carryover there, there was from one resort to another. Um, and, and he's changed jobs a number of times within that industry. And I always used to say to myself and, you know, why doesn't he go work for, Marriott or Sheridan or Hilton or one of the main brands in that business, even if you have to start a little lower in the food chain, but just work your way up, they're going to have matching. They're going to have a 401k. They're going to have health care. It may not have a pension in the sense that the government has a pension, but it's going to there's going to be a lot of benefits that will pay off in the end. Uh, you can still do other things on the side and have an adventurous life in your hobbies, maybe become an investor on the side and so forth. But I just think to stick with it with a l- large organization, that always appealed to me. Um, I, I always knew the value of, of a pension and I wanted to get into a career that had a pension because I knew at some point I wanted uh, – <laughs> If at all possible, I always want to own the circumstance instead of the circumstance owning me. Mm-hmm. And what I what I mean by that is, um, right now I I'm working because I want to, not because I have to. I'm working for icing on the cake. I already got the cake, and and that's a good feeling for me. And um, I like that financial security. Um, and I knew. Uh, 
I wanted to stick with, I have a lot of people in my life that have changed jobs, you know, for close people who have changed jobs multiple times and not judging them by any stretch. Um, you know, everybody makes their picks their own journey, but I, I don't feel comfortable with that. Yeah. You know, that's why, like when I'm talking to my daughters about career advice, I talk to them about Fortune 500 companies, good companies. Not all companies are created equal. Publix treats their employees very well. That was Publix was one of the companies I was looking at when I was looking to transition out of the federal government. I I wanted to work for a company that was employee centric and customer centric. You know, a, a company that had a good business plan, um, but also knew the value of their resources, their people. Yeah, and um, that's uh, that's what I was looking for. So you know, I was looking at companies like Home Depot and Publix and different that that just have uh, a low turnover uh, and you know somewhat of a high morale uh, within their organization. And um, that that's kind of what I've done. You know, it it is. Um, any one year, I wasn't uh, making Bill Gates money, uh, but I was doing okay. And I was putting away, you know, 7, 10, 15% of my income. Government was matching 5%. I was investing in the, you know, I've, I, I've invested in the S&P 500 for almost three decades now. Um, if you do that, even if you're, you know, it's going to pay off in time. I mean, it, it it's yeah. going to be a large chunk of money. So, so yeah. it is. So basically you're just playing like the long-term game. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, and some people, I I've seen some people hit the grand slam, you know, they, they go off on their own and they make it work. Yeah. Um, but, um, I just like the big companies. That's just my personality. Um, the, some people, don't like selling out to a large organization or the federal government and stuff like that, or, or to a, a big bureaucracy. Yeah. But I say, change the bureaucracy, go inside and be an agent of change within that organization. And, um, uh, I just, um, and the other thing that I, I recognize, and it's, it's an unfortunate reality and is the need for healthcare. A lot of small companies can't provide healthcare and healthcare is so important as you get older. And that's another thing that kind of drove me to that more traditional route where I, I just wanted to, um, I wanted to make sure my family always had healthcare. Uh, we always had benefits and, um, and, and at the end of my career, I wanted to have something to show for it. Yeah. Hundred percent. So basically, I mean, with with like all you said, who was your financial coach? Was your parents? Was it someone like 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 a guru? Was it an influencer that really made your financial choices in your life and impacted you to think this way and be this way? So when I was in the sheriff's office as a deputy sheriff, I was um, one of my uh, zone partners. He was an older guy, much older than me, and uh, his wife was a financial planner uh, for American Express at the time, and. Um, he recognized that I was struggling with some of my financial decisions. And he said, you really need to talk to my wife. And so he, uh, one thing led to another and I sat down and, uh, my wife and I sat down with his wife and, um, we, uh, she gave us quite an education and it was basically just financial planning basics, just but common to, sense, to common yeah. sense yeah. stuff. Okay. But in my young twenties, it was enlightening. And, and in my mid twenties, it was oh, okay. Weird question though: If you got that to sit down with her before you made those irresponsible financial decisions, would you have taken it the same way? 
would you have take digested it and really followed it or do you think you needed because i was uh i was more um good question uh i was more hungry to hear the advice because i was drowning at the moment you know we were drowning in interest payments and we were like what did we do to ourselves how do we get out from underneath this so we were looking for someone to help us you know and and she started talking to us about debt consolidation some of our decision making uh, getting rid of the credit cards, going on a cash basis, long-term investing. Um, she started um, talking about the basics to us, uh, in- income to debt ratios and so forth. And it was just completely eye-opening. Now, um, once I got into the federal government, I uh, found another financial planner that I stuck with and he helped me um, you know, get the right life insurance policies, the the right amount of coverage, which in law enforcement, it was kind of important to have yeah, life insurance super. and so forth. So and long-term disability insurance to make sure we were covered in that sense. Um, and, uh, and then he, he just kind of broke it down our 401k. He said, listen, I can do additional investing with you. And this is what I liked about him because he was a very ethical planner. He said, I am not going to take any of your money until you max out and your 401k. I, and he even said to me, he said, I I would be a thief if I didn't tell you to max out in your company's 401k or the government's TSP as it was. And, um, and I really appreciated that because I knew he was kind of looking out for my best interest. We did some more investing above and beyond that. We invested, uh, in our, both Katrina and Isabel's college education, uh, what's called a 529. We invested in that from the day they were born because of, um, this financial planner, his name was Vic, who, um, helped us really make some smart decisions. Listen, if you don't have a degree in finance or in investing, it's important to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. You don't have to take the advice of the first person you meet. It's probably a good idea if that's not your background, like it wasn't my background, to bounce what you're hearing off of multiple subject matter experts, uh, do your own reading and research. And I did all of those things. And that's why I settled on this particular individual. But don't be afraid to ask for help, look for help. There's a lot of help of available out there when we're making financial decisions. It's not necessarily rocket science. It's yeah. More, it's just discipline. Yeah, true. And just making the right decisions. Yeah. And I would say that's like a big key on why me and Darren started this podcast was basically to influence and help all like, 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 all, like all the youngsters and like all like the Gen Z's and other generations to be like, hey, like, I mean, Getting steps to becoming a millionaire is simple, and I, I'm I'm saying this because I'm I'm, I'm going to take your approach in a way of hey like like simply putting 15% away every single year into the S&P 500 or a 401k, and then let that slowly grow and develop. I mean like that's just since that's that's like sim- simple principles that we're teaching today, and that's why we have like a new guest like on the show every single week, yeah. just basically preaching what you're preaching. Yeah, I mean you can uh, you can have seven figures in your retirement if you put 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 into it every year like you say that you know if you're putting 10 percent away every year and you're working diligently um you know obviously if you if you're not in a large company you'll you need to you know look at some sort of a brokerage firm i would think like yeah. charles schwab or a vanguard somebody who has low fees um and um 
you know, they, they have a lot of good uh, investment opportunities and growth opportunities within, you know, those organizations. But uh, certainly, though, if you have a, if you're in a big company, uh, you know, I don't know, working for Marriott or Disney or whoever you might be working for. Boy, take advantage of that, you know, yeah. their, their 401k program, because that, that'll be a difference maker when you're my age. So a follow up question to the one that's talking about, about the traditional route. Um, what are your keys to not getting stuck in the company? Because I know a lot of people fear that if they take a traditional route, they're just going to stuck in the day to day tasks and they won't be able to actually grow. Like, What are your thing? What are your tips to getting to the place that you want to be in a company? Life, life is a grind. I'm not going to tell you that it's not hard and, um, and that it's not at times frustrating. Uh, it's like climbing Mount Everest. You know, uh, sometimes you're going to, you're going to get worn out and you're going to have to take a couple of breaths and you, you might not feel like you're making much progress. And sometimes, uh, you know, certain, uh, points of the hill might be steeper than other parts and you might not feel like you're making any progress at all because it's just such a steep climb. I'm not trying to overuse analogies here, but I remember at one point I was probably in my early 30s and I was really frustrated. I was like, "Where am I? What, what's going on with my career? What am I doing? You know, I'm so frustrated. Uh, you know, I, I, the the moves weren't happening the way I thought they were going to happen. The the promotions and so forth um, at that time, and I was so frustrated and and I just kind of wasn't having fun anymore. <laughs> My mom being, you know, you know, she was born in 1941. So she's from a previous generation and uh, that, you know, saw a lot of hard times. And, and my mom's like, what do you think? Work's supposed to be fun. That's why they call it work. They don't call it play, <laughs> you know, and, and it was just kind of a cold water in the face moment, you know, where I was it's like, what are you doing? Like, why? Yeah. So um, you're going to have to have resilience and persistence. Now, to be sure, sometimes if if uh, a climate in a certain company is toxic, uh, and there are companies that have toxic work atmospheres, try to leave gracefully. If it's just not tolerable to you, don't burn your bridges. Um, if you're going to move to another company, but um, if it's a good company, stick it out. Uh, sometimes your promotions, you can go years without a promotion and all of a sudden you'll get two in one year. Um, and that's what happened with me. So I, I got, you know, I would get two or three promotions within a, a three year time period. But before that, there was like a stagnation where I went five years without any, you yeah. know, upward mobility. So you, you, so you must get, have taken a lot of this. Yeah, you have to have a staying power. Um, and it is a grind. Life is a grind. I, I mean, and that is uh, to be sure. That's why it's important uh, to have a healthy, to have balance, to have a healthy family life, to work for a company that understands the importance of time off and and personal life and vacations and so forth, because you do need to recharge your batteries. You have to have healthy out, um, hobbies. Um, you need to take care of yourself and make sure you're living a healthy life. Um be active as active as you can on the weekends and um, and in the don't make it just about work. I mean, work's important. Stick with it. Uh, but you do, uh, you know, mental health, your sanity. I mean, yeah. life is <laughs> such a grind. It's so competitive that if that's all you focus on, you're, you're going to drive yourself bonkers. I mean, it, let's you know, uh, have balance in life. And that's how you can get through those tough seasons at your job. You know, keep your eye open for other opportunities, of course, you know, uh, but, you know, you've everyone's heard the cliche, the grass isn't always greener. Well, the reason it's a cliche is it's not always green, greener. Yeah. Sometimes we look at our 
current situation with negativity and we put on flowery sunglasses and look at the other situation yeah. and just view all the positives and you don't understand that well there's negatives over there as well so of course yeah it's a grind though and um uh but just like climbing mount everest is a grind i tell you uh, it's worth it uh, i i i have spring to my step right now being a retiree from the federal government having that pension in my back pocket having access to health care for the rest of my life yeah um access to affordable health care i should say and um um i i don't um i know i'm blessed to have that and and it was it was worth all of those tough years um, where you know all of the frustration that I went through because let's face it if you stick with a company for 25, 26 years like I did um, you know being with the federal government I've had great bosses and I've had horrendous bosses you're going to have both mm-hmm. and those are, it's it's tough you know you have to how to get through the really bad ones. Lots of patience, lots of prayer, lots of meditation, uh, having yeah. a nice, you know, uh, having people, safe people uh, that you can vent to. Um, be careful who you vent to, uh, but you, you got to have people that you can vent to. And um, it is, it's hard uh, to to get through. I had a, um, one of my toughest bosses when I uh, worked in Southern California, um, he was an absolute tyrant. Uh, and he was dealing with a lot of demons personally. Uh, and I think he was not a bad guy, but he was, he had a drinking problem. Uh, and he had some mental health issues that he was dealing with. And he brought some of that to work sometimes. And uh, um, uh, unstable, very, very unstable um, person to be around. Um, but um, he, you know, you have to just, when you're dealing with those types of people, you have to remember there's something going on there, you know, yeah. and, and there's there you, you everyone, you got to look for the good in people around you. And in some of these bad bosses, I had to try to look for the good in them and, and so forth. Um, I did try to get away from them as much as possible uh, within the same organization. You know, I, I think I just need to kind of get over here to get, to get away from It's just not healthy. It's toxic yeah. being working for this individual. But uh, there's no magic uh, answer to that. It's just patience and, and diligence. Sometimes you have to have tough conversations with those types of people. You know, when people start, um, if they're acting unprofessional or disrespectful, uh, there's no reason for that. You know, there's in, in the modern workforce, there's no reason for incivility. You know, in the uh, you know in the 70s and 80s, and even in the decades earlier. Um, bosses would yell at their subordinates all the time yeah that shouldn't be happening anymore we're, we're better than that and um that that's one thing you should never tolerate in the workforce is incivility like if you're doing something wrong uh your boss should just tell you and talk to you uh yeah and uh, they don't need to to be uh yelling at you and so forth and but that's also something you need to remember when you're in a position of leadership you know that there's never any reason to lose your civility with somebody, um, you know, but um, that's a whole nother issue. I mean, leadership, it's, it's a hard issue. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically just to go back to the grind, when you said, you know, when the days got rough, 
I mean, like for me, it's like when I have tough days, I just, I, I, I kind of go back and think, like, what's my why? Like, like, why am I doing this? I'm doing this for a greater purpose. So me, me asking you right now is like, what was your why at the time? Like, why did you wake up and do what you did? Well, um, I do believe that my career as a DEA agent was a calling, you know, it was uh, not a job. It, it was a calling. So that was, I was blessed to have that. Um, I, we were able to do a lot of good and, and there were a lot of, um, uh, you know, there were bad actors in our community that were making, uh, profits off the backs of other people's broken lives off of the backs of other people's, uh, drug dependency. And, um, and that's not right, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. um, and, um, we needed to put those folks out of business and, um, you know, there's obviously drug laws and minimum mandatory sentencing that that's a very, I don't agree with everything uh, involved with the system. And, and, and sometimes the system is too hard uh, on second, you know, the, people don't have a lot of second chances and so forth, yeah. but, but I always felt like I was making the community better. And um, so that was having that calling, doing, you know, serving the community in that capacity. I always felt good about that. Okay. I mean, there's a dark side uh, to it. You know, our criminal justice system definitely needs reform. And sometimes you you would feel a little dirty being part of a system that was um, not being as equitable as it probably should have been. You know, that was uh, problematic too, you know, but I, I, try to be that agent of change from inside, you know, try to steer things in a better direction. So, so basically for you, I mean, your why was just, you know, like you wanted good in life, like you wanted to do good. You wanted to give good. Absolutely. Got you. And then also just like another follow-up question. So what are some books or what are some mentors in your life that kind of guided you to like who you are now or maybe a more, maybe like a TV show or just, or just something that is like, is like helping you financially? Um, so it was a interesting, um, I got really serious about my faith in my, uh, thirties and, and that really, um, and I got serious about prayer uh, and serious about journaling. I had a good friend talk to me about, um, the importance of journaling and, um, and the reason it's, it's kind of like uh, your own personal accountability partner. And, and he said, you got to be as real as possible in your journal. You need to talk about what you did on any given day. And if you find yourself editing your journal, like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to put that down or mm. I'm not going to write that down because you wouldn't want someone to read it. Well, why are you doing it then? If you're afraid of someone is so... Um, and it was a good way for me to channel my thoughts, channel my frustrations, talk about what I did, what I plan on doing. Um, I, you know, my journal was a lot of times in bullets. It wasn't like Mark Twain or anything. Yeah. But uh, just talk about what I wanted to do, what I was, um, uh, what I needed to do, the frustrations that I was having. Um, you know, maybe make a comment on a devotional reading that I did that day, and it just got me to. Um, you know, a little more internal reflection and a little more focus on, on helping other people and not just focusing on helping myself. So uh, that was really important for me. Uh, as far as like leadership, there was a, uh, a book, uh, Michael Abershaw, he's a uh, retired naval guy who wrote a book, uh, It's Your Ship. I really, it's a very simple read. It's something you can read in like uh, 
two nights and it's a uh, a book about a guy who took over the lowest performing ship in the navy as a captain uh and within one year it became the highest performing and highest rated ship in the navy and um a lot of people caught wind of it harvard started to bring him in and have him give talks about how he was able to transform the, that ship so quickly uh, and then he ended up writing a book on it that became a new york times bestseller but Bottom line is uh, what he did, and I, I really liked this, is uh, because you two will be in positions of leadership someday soon in companies, because if, if it's not in your own company, I can see it when I'm yeah. looking at you. And one of the things when you're leading people, you have to empower them. And that was his whole approach. He wanted everybody to feel it was their ship. It wasn't his ship, like the line cook that worked in the kitchen, the guy who was in charge of facilities, i.e. the janitor for the ship. You know, he wanted everybody to feel like it's their ship and he wanted them to take ownership in their job and to have input as to how their job should be done. And he always wanted those open lines of communication. So it was all about find out what pe his people needed to succeed and get it for them and uh you know all about empowerment because then they're yeah. going to perform and um and it was really a respect-based system and uh, a, a kind of a servant style of leadership so um whether you're a formal leader or an informal leader in an organization i think uh if you can help equip and empower your peers to succeed, uh, you'll get a lot in return tenfold. And it's just the right thing to do anyways. So that's one of the leadership books that I like, but it was really about getting serious about my faith and journaling that really helped me throughout my thirties. Um, I've kind of gotten away from journaling recently as I'm sitting here talking to you and I probably need to get back to it a little bit more, but it really helped me during that, the grind yeah. years. Have you tried other things such as like meditation, yoga, um, anything with like spirituality? Well, in regards to yoga, I, don't, I haven't touched my toes in like 10 years. So I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, um, I pray every day. Okay. And uh, I, um, you know, some people call it meditation. I'll call it prayer. You know, yeah. I, um, uh, a lot of small prayers throughout the day, uh, not um, long eloquent prayers, yeah. but just, you know, very quick, short prayers throughout the day as I'm changing venues. If I'm going into a potentially contentious meeting, you know, Lord, just help me to be the man you need me to be. Help me to be the person I need to be in this situation. Um, just help, you know, those types of really quick, short, you know, these are overly theological, I, I guess we could say, but, uh, it, it helps me to just the little yeah. small prayers throughout the day. And then of course, at the end of the day, before I go sleep go to sleep, I feel compelled to get on my knees and, and offer up my prayers because uh, I know I'm blessed. And, um, you know, I've had my challenges in life. I've had my setbacks, but all in all things are good. And, and I don't want to just go to the Lord when, you know, no, uh, times I don't, tough. Yeah, when, yeah, when times are tough, I want to go to yeah. them every day. And and uh, and again, I don't mean to be overly preachy. No, uh, but I um, that that's helped me a lot. It really, yeah. especially during the grind years of my government career, it really helped me. And then when I was um, thinking about transitioning out of government service, it helped me tremendously. And I think that carries over into just daily life as well. Like you don't want to go to the people that helped you and only when you need them as well. You want to reach out to them, little touches of, hey, just because I think about you, just because I care. Um, there's a lot of principles in the Bible that carry over and just success as a whole. And I've learned that 
um, it's just principles that you should follow. And Absolutely. the gratitude really helps you get through the really hard times. I understand that one as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I like the 13th chapter of first Corinthians is my favorite, uh, chapter in the Bible, just because, um, the Corinthians, you know, the church was battling with each other and there was nothing, but there, there was different camps and there was, uh, uh, they were very contentious towards one another. No one was getting along, different tribes and, and um, uh, you know, and, and basically at the end of chapter 13, you know, Paul says faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. And, and uh, I've always liked that because I, it kind of reminds me of where we are today. I mean, conservatives and liberals can't stand each other. And, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it I think a, a lot that verse would it could go a long ways, but um, anyways, it uh, yeah, there's we're definitely living in a a difficult times. So I'm excited about guys like yourself uh, because you know coming up into this world because we need folks like you all to help you know kind of calm things down. And <laughs> yeah, no, we're trying. It's One the, thing I appreciate is the fact that because I, I I grew up in the church as well, and a big thing is a lot of Christians expect the blessings to rain on them and they yeah. want God to bless them with everything. But the fact that you understand the principle of how to grow finance and how to build wealth and things like that on top of knowing that having a greater source of energy that you can call on, um, that is, that seems to be the key. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, um, you know, um, I have a lot of friends who are, are, um, very devout Christians. I have, uh, friends, uh, close friends of other, um, you know, faiths. I, I have non-believers who are friends and so forth. And, um, it's, it's interesting the, um, as of late, I, especially my non-believing friends, they're very fr frustrated with, uh, Christians right now. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and, and I, um, uh, it's definitely important to to hear what they're saying and to talk to them and so forth because they uh, um, their frustrations uh, with us uh, in, a, in a you know is valid you know I don't know I don't know what your both your faiths are right now and so forth but I, I didn't mean to take this to church route but no. but it's no. important uh, you know. Um, you know, we're supposed to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received, you know, and in and, and whatever capacity we decide to serve, we're all called to serve other people, you know, whether it's as a nurse or a doctor or yeah. a fireman or a police officer or a school teacher or, uh, you know, an, a, a, an attorney that's, you know, working pro bono cases uh, to, to help the, you know, the victims in our society. I mean, there's there's so many different ways to serve other people. And we, I think we all just need to but that, focus that's on that. Key. Um, yeah. You know, when you drive, I think it's on Riverside and Holmberg, and you know, that really big house with a huge golf course, like in the back. I don't know if you know what you're talking about. It's like this giant mansion. Mm -hmm. And growing up, I would always drive past that house. And I was like, I want to own that house one day. Like I'm going to be rich enough to own that house. And I would just tell myself that. And as I get more into the business world and as I get to work with more people, my mentality isn't how much money do I have to make to get that house, but how much money do I have to make other people to then have the residue to own that house? And like, yeah. I realized I wasn't even dreaming big enough because 
it's simple. If you want to be happy, you make other people happy. If you want to help other people grow, you, if you want to grow, you want to help other people grow. And that idea of servanthood really carries over into any story that I've heard about success. And I'm happy that you talk about that in that way, because like Jesus, he did walk the life of servanthood, even though he helped so many people and he was considered the king of everything. Um, it's such, it's an overlooked thing. Everyone wants to be treated like royalty, but no one wants to treat other people like royalty. Yeah. And if we can just switch it real quick, everything's good. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, um, I, and I, you know, I actually, you know, when in recent years I've struggled with a little bit, and this is, uh, I'll be open about it. I've struggled a little bit with anxiety and it hit me unexpectedly, uh, in my adult years, never my life have ever dealt with, uh, anxiety. It's a really weird thing. Yeah. And, um, at least it is for me. And I, and, um, uh, what I found is when I'm focusing just on me is when I'm most anxious. 100%. And so, 100%. And uh, when I'm focusing on other people, as far as serving other people, looking like, what can I do to help this person? Yeah. That And I'm trying to it help other grounded. people. It keeps you grounded. Yeah. Your your head is not focusing on your your whatever's going on inside of your mind. You're 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 just living life and and living the good life and the right life. Yeah. Um. Just for me, that's that's helped to keep my, uh, you know, anxiousness in check because, you know, there's been plenty of things in life that have happened to me that have, you know, can it's a pers- perfect storm for some anxiety and so yeah, forth. And you just got to get your head out of that space. As we're uh, as we begin to wrap up, is there any last things you want to leave everyone with? <sighs> um. I wish I would have thought about that question beforehand because I, I don't know off the top of my head, but um, uh, I, I would just say the the Mount Everest analogy, just life is a grind, but it is worth it. You know, um, uh, you know, financial independence is important. Uh, it's not uh, the end all be all. Uh, we're all, you know, but uh, it is definitely important and you got to have you got to stick to it and just keep leaning forward Um try to enjoy the journey along the way. Um, but, uh, keep leaning forward. It's worth it. It can be a grind at times, have, have some accountability partners that can help you get through those tough times, um, have hobbies. I've struggled with that. I don't have as many hobbies as I should, uh, but have fun hobbies, have healthy friends, uh, and just stick to it. Gotcha. Oh, uh, John. Well, it was great to have you on. And, um, it was just honestly, just great to hear your whole experience. So thank Thanks you a lot. Thank you. Thank you. All right.